Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here with Michael P. Feldman. Thanks for being with us today, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you tell our listeners who you are and where you're from? Uh, my name, again, is Michael Feldman. I'm from New York, New York these days. And uh, I co-founded a company called Choice New York Management, doing property management in 2010. And then in 2013, I founded a company, co-founded a company called Staffing by Choice, which is uh, provides supers, porters, handy persons, store persons, concierge. It's a third party to the same clients, being building owners. And then in 2019, we launched our residential brokerage called Home by Choice, uh, all run out of our Manhattan office. Awesome. Yeah. And Choice New York's been around for, for quite a while now. What got you into the real estate industry? Um, you know, I'd love to say it was uh, some sort of master plan, but it was really uh, fear, unabated fear and pure, true uh, desperation, I would say. And, uh, you know, I think it's important for people who are earlier on in their career to to know that it, it's really not, you don't have to have some huge passion in what you're doing. I think you just, to be successful, I think to be successful, you just have to have a passion to be successful. And uh, for me, that's more what it was. Got it. So you kind of discovered real estate and then, you know, throughout that experience, you're able to say, hey, property management looks interesting because that's the core of the business, right? Is, is property management kind of started at all? Yeah. You and know, I was actually living in LA, not far from where you are. Mm-hmm. And I was in the movie business when I first finished college and um, I was behind the scenes and I thought, wow, this is really competitive. And I also thought it's a really sexy business. And, you know, real estate brokerage is definitely, you know, there's the appeal of sort of making your own hours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, real estate development, there's a fascination with and understandably so you're creating a, a new building, new shelter, as I like to say. And I just thought, you know, I knew a guy who manufactured tires. And he was the wealthiest guy I knew. And so I said, maybe I can be in the real estate industry, but in kind of a part that's a little less competitive. Uh, I found out it's still pretty competitive, but uh, especially if you want to, you know, kind of get towards the top of the heap. But yeah, for me, that was part of my calculation. I liked the idea of recurring revenue um, as a business person. I think that's kind of number one um, is recurring revenue. Uh, property management is high intensity customer service. So I'm if I could do it all over again, you know, I'd say something like insurance is a great business. But I think if you're a real estate agent or broker, you really want to think in those terms. Um, my old partner, still a very close friend, um, used to always say, hey, do you want to be a hustler or do you want to have a business? Right. So that's really a way to bifurcate it in your mind. Like the real estate brokers that are really successful and really good, they're not thinking, oh, when they wake up, how am I going to make my next commission? When's my phone going to ring? They already have a business. They're just working on improving it, but they know they're in business. They know they're going to make money. It's just a question of how much. And that's a business. That's not a hustle. I mean, everyone's hustling to a certain extent, but you know, I could leave my business for a year, come back, and I know that my business would be probably better than it is now and certainly not much worse. Um, right. So that's, that's a business where you can leave it and it still runs. No, that's a great point. 
And a lot of real estate professionals do suffer from that, the solopreneurship. <laughs> it's all dependent upon them, right? So right. top agents listening to this podcast that are you know building teams, a lot of them are still reliant upon their personal production. And so you know, you're know focusing on property management and it seems like pretty early on, you understood this concept and you were able to then build the team around property management. I am curious, are you focusing mainly on commercial? Are you doing, is it multifamily? Is it like entire apartments buildings in New York? Is it single family homes? I'm really curious about the market because you know the New York metro area is so different from the, the suburbs and stuff like that. So uh, can yeah. you shed a little bit more light on, on the portfolio and what you really specialize in with property management? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the foundation of, of the business, because there really wasn't much by, by chance. Some of it was happenstance, but most of it is from design is that we're really diversified, um, not just mm. having three different businesses. We actually have four brands, but um, we have uh, about 10% commercial, only buildings. We don't manage any single units. 10% commercial, about 30% co-op, which we have co-ops, of course, in New York. 30% condos, 30% rentals, rentals. And then within that, we have, for example, in the rentals, we have regulated, which obviously has been a big thing in California, especially of late, right. just like in New York, the law is changing a lot. And, you know, so we have regulated about 50%, 50% free market. And the bottom line is, uh, I don't know, I, I like to say I have a healthy paranoia. My wife, I think, just calls it paranoia. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like when COVID happened, my top line revenue was up. 63% from 2020 over 19. It'll be up a lot again. You know, we have 215 people. I have a president in each of the four brands. Um, and it, to go back to your first point, it really didn't happen very quickly. It's 13 years seems like, I mean, it's, I even smiled when you said it. You've been at it for a, a while now. It still feels like a startup to me. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the idea is just, I, I you know, I didn't, I always wanted to have a business and have it run, but I didn't know how to do it. And like, I remember one of my college buddies saying, Hey, what about giving like a little bit of equity away to really talented people to bring them on? And I said, I don't want to give equity away, but I ended up doing that years later. And, you know, I have six partners and they're all great and, and they all grow the business for me a lot of the time. So hopefully not too many people are, I hope a lot of people are watching, but hopefully not them. <laughs> so, uh, because they, they do a great job for me and it's, it's symbiotic though. No, ab absolutely. And that concept is a tried and true way to keep top talent because at the end of the day, I mean, top talent is so hard to find. So when you do come across somebody that is incredible and they're a good culture fit, it does make sense to incentivize them long-term because those top performers aren't going to stay just for a paycheck. They need, right. they need the culture, right. they need the, the exit strategy, they need other things. And so, you know, they might equal three other employees. So by giving a little equity away and keeping them, and also then now they're tied into the back end where they are incentivized to grow everything. It's, That's a big part of it for sure. Yeah, and yeah. it's always like, all right, well, I'm going to give 1% up. Do I think this person in three years will make my business worth more than 1%? You know, that's the easy equation. And usually that's a, you know, if you feel really good about the person, and you have you know good solid agreements in place. It's uh, it really works great, right? So, as an entrepreneur, what's the single most important action you take every day that you attribute most to your success? Well, you know it's a complex world, and so I think you know to 
be successful at it, you have to be a sophisticated actor. So it's hard to narrow it down to one thing. So I'll, I'll say keeping my core values, which is the same as mm. our company values. The company values are five things. So it's um, one, be kind. Two, be fair. Three, work hard. Four, earn money. Five, do good. It's that simple. And um, then from there, everything comes. So, I mean, I really try to attack problems aggressively as well as opportunities aggressively. And so, you know, some people I've seen really, really great at doing those things where they they can like block out everything else in tunnel vision. You know, I think you can't, you got to be careful not to drop everything else. But if you can really prioritize, especially the things you don't want to do, that's really the hard work. That's how I define hard work, doing things you don't want to do at a time when you don't want to do them, doing things you don't want to do at a time when you don't want to do them, that's hard work. And so I put that first. I even in the crazy years when I was really building the business, I would even put in my alarm 5 a.m., 5.15, 5.30, the number one problem I was dealing with. So when I, my alarm would go off, it's the first thing I would see in the morning. And that, that gets you out of bed. Now, at least it did for me. Nice. I like that trick. Yeah. Not the most pleasant thing necessarily, but uh, it's effective. Right. Eat the frog, as they'd say. Do the biggest, you know, most important task that you have that day first and just get it done, <laughs> however long right. it takes. Right. Where do you think the industry is heading? You mentioned that your revenues increased during COVID, which from an outside perspective, not owning a property management company, I would think it would be the opposite or at least pretty soon here, landlords are, are a little bit tired of, you know, getting either reduced rents or, or having increased vacancies. So you're mentioning like 63% growth during COVID and you right. know, more this year. So I'm curious from your perspective, where you think the industry is heading? You know, what are your like five, 10 yeah. projections? Well, first of all, caveat on the 63%, about 30% came via an acquisition. We bought a competing property management company towards the end of 19. So that was about almost half of the growth. Um, Got it. But the other half was from a lot of contracts that were already in the works. My my original partner used to say, you know, make them feel obligated to hire us. So by the time it's time for them to make their decision, right? I see it the same thing with real estate brokers where we're consulting the same developer for years, years before we actually get there. Where I think the industry head, is heading, I think, you know, there's some headwinds. I'd love to, to see the industry become more exclusive. Uh, obviously self-serving, not just for me, but for other people in the industry, but also because I think it's better. It would be a better outcome. You know, you look at American Medical Association, American Medical Association, they limit the number of doctors, right? Dentists, lawyers have limits, accountants, you know, and you say, well, okay, well, it's, it's people's health, it's doctors. Well, we're providing shelter, you know, and so I'm not suggesting you can limit, you know, ownership because that's, you know, anyone can buy a building and that's part of what makes this country great. But, you know, in terms of real estate licensees, licensure, property management licensure, I'd love to see that become more exclusive. I think you there's so many good apples. There's so many more good apples in the industry than bad. And it would it would help not just protect the inflow of of new agents every time the the market goes up like now, but provide a better quality of service and people, you know, when they rank the levels of, you know, of who do you trust the most, who's the worst, like right, right above politicians are real estate developers, real estate agents, real estate brokers, property managers. It's unfortunate because those are some of my best friends in the world. Uh, I think we're great people. And it would just, I think, help the industry as a whole if we could, if we could uh, have more exclusivity, make the licensing tougher, 
And I think that would be a good step in terms of where we can head. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with that. It's far too easy to get your license and a lot of fair weather agents come in and ruin it for a lot of the agents that have been doing it for 20 years, 25 years that have high integrity. So totally agree with you there. And on the property management side, I'm curious if there's anything that you do for your clients that nobody else in the industry does that you know of. Is there any like unique value prop that you so offer? I'll give you the, um, the politically correct answer first. And then if we have time, I'll give you the how we do. Okay. So, well, I mentioned earlier, we delineate our service. We really have three different businesses in one. In New York City, that's very unusual, um, if not unique in the true sense of the word unique. There's plenty of larger competitors that have the brokerage and then the property management sort of tails the brokerage. There's the opposite where they have the management and then the brokerage, but very few have the staffing and the management. I think we're the only one in the top 20 that have the staffing, the management, and the brokerage where we can go to a client and I can sit in the conference room and bring in my management team. They go for 15 minutes, then my staffing team for 15 minutes, then my brokerage team for 15 minutes. And they say, look, you can obviously hire us for none of these services. We hope that's not the case. You can hire us for one, but if you hire us for two, we're going to give you a quarter percent off the management fee. It's a little more precise than that because we use models and things. And then if you hire us for all three, and I kind of submit that, you know, remember after Madoff, everyone would say, well, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. I submit you don't hear that as much anymore. You actually hear things more like one-stop shop or in New York real estate style, what we call one throat to choke. And so it's higher accountability for the client. It gives us more control over the staff and it's an efficient you know, we are able to operate more efficiently. That's part of the reason we can we can give discounts when we're working on all three. And so that's one. The politically incorrect answer is that we fire clients regularly. Mm. And I don't say that in an ego or blood sport kind of way. I say it in really like it's not fair to our good clients if we're not firing the bad clients. Um, and obviously, right. when we're firing them, we're trying to do it in a very graceful manner in line with the agreement and, you know, finish on a good note. But you know, I think for real estate agents, it's the analogy would be you're, you know, going around and around showing 50 houses to one potential buyer. And it's not fair because you're maybe not giving attention to another client that actually needs more attention. Um, that's a really good client. And so management, it's even more pronounced than that, probably, because we're not working on success. We have a recurring contract. So there's no penalty really if they're overusing our services. And it's not as if you know, just on reputation alone, we can't go and say, all right, well, you know, we're obligated to send out a full management report on the 20th of the month. We can't not do that because someone's a smaller client or not as really, it's not about size. It's more about personality of the human. And so uh, every time we get a new client right now, for the past two years, we've been firing clients at the same time. So we're not increasing the number of clients. We're just improving the quality. And it's a way to and we do that with our staff too. And the staff know it. I mean, it's, it sounds crude and it's not a popular thing to brag about at a cocktail hour, but um, it's a necessary part to running a good business is being willing to end relationships that are not mutually beneficial. Yeah. Not a good fit. Yeah. I mean, it comes down to the amount of resources that they're consuming, right? And there are just some clients that consume vastly more resources than other clients. And ironically, a lot of times it's 
it is the smaller clients and the, the bigger ones who write the biggest checks have you know the least amount of customer service needs for whatever paradoxical reason that is. Uh, it seems like you start to work with these higher tier clients and your customer service issues go down. I've just noticed that as a trend in, in my own business at least. Totally, but, totally. Yeah. So, so totally true. Ha- having the wherewithal to fire those 20% of your clients that are producing or the, the 80% that are producing the, you know, 20% of the results, like the majority of clients that will take up all your time and they're only producing like a small amount of revenue, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, it's becomes disproportionate and the ROI doesn't make sense. So it's tough to do when you're doing in a client business, but I have also fired clients in the past and it's, kind of a sting at first because you're like looking at the revenue and how hard it was to acquire that client and all these things from the business owner standpoint. But when you really take a step back, it's like, well, that's freeing up resources for not only our active clients, but future clients. I'll say this. I've never once regretted it for a second. And every time I'm always left with a thought, I should have done it sooner. You know, (laughs) that's the only, every time without invariably, without an exception, because there's always, you know, one of my top guys will always say like, ah, probably should wait, you know, there's this, they're not so small, they're pretty big, but, you know, certainly it's the resources versus the benefit cost, simple cost benefit analysis. And you want to be patient, you want to be judicious about it, but it's the small dog versus the big dog, right? Like, you know, I've been walking around here at this beach town and there's um, the small dogs yap like crazy. The big dogs don't need to bark very much right. because everyone can see they're big and they've got a bite. So that's kind of how you have to think about it. I like that. What's your process for evaluating what to say no to? In terms of new clients or salary increases or just what, like anything? We, I mean, anything. We have a million opportunities presented to us every day. The average right. human sees 3,000 ads a day. You know, you're right. pro- probably constantly getting bombarded right. with companies saying, hey, do you need to right. help with Legion? Hey, do you need this, that, or, need right. that? or a client? Or there's so many yes, no decisions, especially as a business yeah. owner. So what's your process yeah, for evaluating what to say no to? I think it's hard because there's so much coming out at you. Like you say, these days, again, I submit 30 years ago, right? There was knowledge is power. You don't actually hear that that much anymore because now it's a question of having a traffic cop to limit the information you're getting because there's so much information coming at right. you. And so my default generally is no, which I know is harsh sounding. And Ryan Serhan, who I know, you know, is always saying, say yes to everything. I think it depends on the business you're in, the property management business, you really have to be, you know, wary, unfortunately, especially in probably places like New York and, and Southern California, the supply constrained, you know, cities that have Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean and a lot of zoning laws. So, I mean, I just think you have to be willing to, and I wasn't good at it, you know, but you always can be more efficient. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. The people who say they're busy are the least busy people I know I find. And so I'm not that busy. I'm not that busy. And it's, it's part of it is delegation. And part of it is just, you know, why take the time to unsubscribe and you can just block, you know, block the sender quicker. So I mean, like, you know, I think, I think you have to just kind of try to get rid of all the little uh, mosquito bites, as I call them. And, and that way, you're able to pounce when there's, there's a really nice, fruitful opportunity to pursue. No, oh, I think it's a great point. And Tim Ferriss talks about going on a low information diet, yeah. something I subscribed yeah. to years ago, when yeah. I first read the four hour work week, it was like, man, yeah, that is so true. <laughs> so yeah. I started, I, I don't have any notifications on my phone. Like 
I check texts and things when it, when I'm ready to go do them in a batch. Like I, I know that my most important activity is not going to be interrupted by a phone call or this and that when I'm really in the zone because, ah, that time is so precious when you're really focused on one thing and you're deep in it. And when something interrupts you, it takes you over 20 minutes to get back to that level of depth of focus on that one activity. So pretty much nothing is, is that important. And of course my fiance can call through like there, there's like my favorites list of, of my friends and family where if they need something, they can interrupt me. But other than that, come on, like those little mosquito bites add up and they fatigue you. They fatigue you emotionally. They fatigue your resilience to other issues. They fatigue your decision-making ability later on, on more important subjects. So there's a bit, a heavy cost to that information that we're downloading all at all times. And so that's why I I asked that question. I I appreciate it. You know, and I know that real estate agents, again, different, but I'm not on Instagram, Facebook, never had an account, nothing, none of that, Twitter, just because to me, it's, I mean, I know there's good content sometimes, but it's just more noise. I don't need, you know, they're trying to get me to do it. I've resisted because I just, to me, it's just more stuff coming at me and I want to control the information that's going into my brain. And yeah, I, I, I read that book twice. I listened to it last time recently. And there's always, those books are great. They obviously have to be a little bit flamboyant where a professional like you is a, you know, a little more pragmatic maybe with your advice. So, I mean, a four hour work week, you know, he had a software business, but I, there was always one takeaway that I love from each one of these books that I read. Usually there's one thing. And, and um, for him, I tried the virtual assistant and ha- we had some success with that. Um, so I like that. I don't use it, but a couple of my, my partners do and like it. So, um, and it was all from that book. So I, yeah, books like that are really good if you're into business because it just keeps you thinking. No, I agree. And I also took the the VA approach. He was way ahead of it. And after yeah. reading that, I, I did contract brickwork and, and did my first thing. Since then, I've found other avenues to f- find virtual assistants. But yeah, he was way ahead of his game on that. And now it's much more commonplace to have a virtual assistants. So, you know, on that note, I know that we're cutting short on time and you have a hard stop coming up. I'm curious about, you know, like one to three books that have greatly influenced your life or career. We've already talked about four hour work week. So are there a couple other prominent ones that that you would point our listeners to? You might have to come back to me on that. I may have to email it out because I'm I'm in vacation mode right now. uh, But uh, there is um, the Rockefeller book, which is, I think, you know, written by Rockefeller on how to sell that, that, that. Yeah. Is it Mastering the Rockefeller Habits or is it a different one? Different one. I'll get okay. it out to you. It's uh, all right, all right. basically how to sell. It's how to sell, which, you know, to me is every executive in America, the big dirty secret is they're all salespeople. They're all salesmen. Right. They're all saleswomen. You know, you have to be able to, selling is never lying, but putting the truth in the best possible light. And for me, I mean, I know the books are great. What's even better than the books is I attached myself at the hip to three or four incredibly successful people. And I mimicked, I wanted to know everything about them. I wanted to know when they go to the bathroom. That's how much I wanted to know. Uh, I I wanted to know every habit they do, how they thought about everything. I just followed them around. And so, you know, the books are great because these are successful people that have, that have a way of thinking that's, that's maybe different and helps differentiate themselves and their business. But if you can get live interaction and back and forth, I always got more out of learning from from people like that because you can you can ask questions and get immediate responses. So if you can if you can get yourself, you know, rub shoulders and 
I call it, uh, I'm an unapologetic social climber, you know, because it's just who you hang out with matters in your personal life. And it's going to affect your business, especially when you're in the people business, which is real estate. So more than the books, which I'm blanking on, I, I mean, I would try to find a few people to, uh, to learn from. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more that mentorship is critical to personal success. And I'm curious now, uh, what, scaling what kind up of insights? EOS, scaling up uh-huh. EOS. It's, so I'm in YPO, which is a young professionals organization and national organization. And there's a, a group for people earlier on in the career called EO. And someone in that group wrote a book and it's, it's a very almost scientific structured way to start and grow a business. And it's, yep. if you follow that, yeah, you're familiar with it. I'm a big uh, scaling I, up fan. Yeah. We don't do everything in the book. Some people like take it as the Holy Bible, which is awesome if they can do that. But we do rocks and things like that that are just, you know, very effective ways to run a meeting, starting meetings on time, any meet. So that's a good one. Uh, it's a little more like a science book, but if you, it's dense, but it's extremely effective. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. And that'd be my number successful- one. The most successful businesses I've been a part of and ran, we we used scaling up practices. So I'd highly recommend it. I haven't had any other listeners suggest that book, so uh, or any other guests rather. So I appreciate you putting that on the table for our listeners. So I know we're getting towards the end here of, of your time, which I appreciate. Is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier? No, I'm good. I, I got to get to someplace. So uh, this was great, though. I, I really commend you for doing this. It's uh, I got a chance to listen to a few of the podcasts prior now. now so I'm not only a guest, I'll be a listener. And uh, you can always learn more. And that's the fun thing about business. There's always, you know, you get around one set of obstacles and, you know, there's a whole new set and uh, you got to kind of embrace that. And And yeah, I would just say that, you know, if you can think more like, how are you in a recurring revenue business rather than a hustle? doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I spent every hour of every day for years and years working to get myself basically out of the operation of my business. And it's not linear, but as long as you, you have to have that goal and stay true to it, but also you still got to mind the shop, right? So it's not like I'm suggesting, oh, you have a $3 million sale and you should just not call the client back and have you know, your associate call them back when they're upset. You still got to make those calls. It's just working towards that. And a lot of that's who you can surround yourself with and how you can make compelling offers to, to have them, those people attract that talent onto your team and, and retain them. Absolutely. Well said. Well, how can listeners contact you? My email is probably best, michael.feldman at choicenewyork.com. Choice like you choose. New York is not an acronym. I hate acronyms. They're spelled out. Choicenewyork.com. It's kind of a mouthful. Or um, my direct line, 646-402-6412. Awesome. Michael P. Feldman, everyone. Really appreciate you shedding light on your entrepreneurial journey and your current property management, staffing, and uh, brokerage company. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I know my listeners got a lot of value from this. Thanks, Jeff. You're the man. Talk to you. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.